I'm sure it might be true for some of you as it was for me as we were singing that song. It took me back to when I was a child and we would sing that often in church. And I was just thinking about how much the world has changed in those years. It seemed like in those days that, you know, Christians pretty much had the freedom to do whatever we wanted to do at any time. And it feels as the years have progressed that there are more restrictions on us as Christians. That there, the opposition to us and our faith has increased. I read about a court case recently in California where a teacher was continually ridiculing the Christian faith. And one of the students who was a Christian uh, took him to court to stop. And the court said... No, he has the right to say whatever he wants to about the Christian faith. He can ridicule it all he wants. That's okay. And we, we hear that and we think, whoa, that's so different from how things used to be. And yet, not really. When you look back through history, the, God's people have always faced opposition. The Israelites faced opposition. The early church faces opposition, and all through the years, there is opposition. And in fact, in this country, we face very little opposition in compared to most of the world and our brothers and sisters throughout the world. But God's people have faced difficulties. And there is something of that that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples as they bring to a close their time in the upper room and then move into the garden and the events that will transpire there. In the verses 35 to 38, in some of the last words that Jesus speaks, at least that Luke records, he says to his disciples, the opposition is going to increase. He tells them that, you know, when I sent you out before, remember that, how did that go? And he said, it went great, we didn't need anything. And he says, now you're going to need now you're going to need you're going to need funds and you're going to need protection because once I am dead, once they have they have crucified me, the opposition is going to be empowered. Before, when you went out, if you said, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesus is kind of a cult hero. And so that was cool. Well, yeah, come on in. We'll take care of you. We'll feed you. We'll house you. And, and people welcomed you. But in that day... They won't welcome you anymore because to welcome you is going to pit them in opposition to the religious leaders. And it will put their own, their own selves at risk. Before when you went out, you had everything you wanted. Now when you go out, you're an outlaw. And you need to understand that the opposition is increasing. You need to be ready for that. And it shouldn't surprise us. The opposition to God's people has always been a reality of life. And like the disciples, we are asking the question, Lord, what do we do about that? And you move on through the story here in Luke 22 to the 49th verse. In the New Living Translation, it says, Lord, should we fight? Lord, should we fight? We have swords. Should we fight? And it's the same question that Christians are asking today. Lord, should we fight? How do we respond to people who oppose us? What do we do about it? God's people have been asking that question for a long, long time. You go back to Zechariah. And the people have come back from exile. And they're beginning to try to establish the nation of Israel once again. And one of the key elements of that is the temple. 
The temple is not just a building. It symbolizes Yahweh's presence among them. It symbolizes that they are God's people and they are worshiping God and and their faith with God is active. And all that they had known before is being restored. It's all symbolized in the temple. And the nations around them don't want them to be God's people once again. They like it when they're submissive to other nations and scattered. And so they're trying to oppose them building the temple. And they say, what should we do? How do we handle this? And the Lord's word comes to Zechariah and he says, those people who oppose you will be overcome not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And that's still the word today. That was the word of Jesus to his disciples centuries later. It's still God's word to us today as we ask, Lord, in the face of this opposition, do we fight? I think one of the things that we find in this text and throughout Scripture, particularly here, we see that if if we're going to respond to opposition the way that Jesus does, then we have to, to commit ourselves to refuse to use strategies that are, that are contrary to Jesus. We cannot use strategies that Jesus wouldn't use. That's hard because we look around at the strategies of the world and the way things get done in our world. And we think that's what we need to do. I mean, that's how you accomplish things. That's how, that's how you get things. And if that's the way things happen in this world, then if we're going to be a part of bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, we need to engage in those same strategies. These are the strategies people are using against us. So if they work against us, they should work when we go against the other people. But somewhere in that, we have to hear Jesus' word to Pilate as they're having their conversation in John 18. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. But my kingdom's not of this world. It's a, it's a bigger, different kingdom. And so we don't respond the way you would think. Somehow we have to, we present Christ in a way that is contrary to the normal strategies of this fallen world. Something about the strategy we uses that we use makes people stop and take notice and say that's different. It's not the way we typically do things here. All of the earth strategies, the world strategies are flawed. And only the strategy of God in Christ can bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And the great temptation that faces us is to believe that we we can use the strategies of this earth in order to bring about God's kingdom. The great temptation is to believe that those strategies that work everywhere else will work in the church and work in the kingdom. And so we hear ourselves saying, if we, just had, if we just had enough money, then we could bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we just had political clout, we could bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we just had power, we could bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we could get these laws enacted, if we could get public opinion uh, to, to support us, then we could really do something for God and we could make a difference. And all the while, we have forgotten that the strategies of this world are not the strategies of Christ. 
In his book, Hustling God, Craig Barnes says that for Christians, the most deadly temptation is not about our goals, but it's the means we will use to get to those goals. We become so obsessed with the goals that we will trample people to get to them. That if we have to compromise what we know is right, we'll do it because the goal is what's most important. If we have to, if we have to you know, do something a little different than Jesus would do, well, it's okay because the goal is what's important. And he goes on, he makes this interesting statement. He said, it's because of this obsession with the goal that then causes us to do whatever we think we have to do to get to that goal. He said, because of that, good people become mean people. Good people become mean people. And we've all seen it. Maybe we've done it. You know, we're, we're so concerned about this ministry in the church happening that we trample over other ministries in order to make it a reality. It's like a parent that yells at their child about being kind. It, it, you know, it, we do this at work. We do this in our homes. We do this in our relationships. It's because we believe, we've come to believe that the end justifies the means. And it doesn't. I used to think that God's primary concern in our lives was the end, where we get to. I'm coming to see that I think God is more concerned about the journey than the end. Because if we don't if we don't live the journey in the spirit of Christ, we'll never get to the end. We as Christians, we're not concerned about just the end. We're concerned about how we get to the end, how we live, the way we treat people, the kind of decisions that we make that are reflective of Christ. And the strategies of this world will always fall short of the plan and the kingdom of God. I suspect that this is something related to Jesus' conversation about bringing a sword. It's one of the oddest things that we have recorded in Scripture, Jesus saying. It's one of those head scratchers where you say, Jesus really said that you, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one? Biblical scholars who debate you know, what, if there are parts of Scripture that maybe weren't in the original text and they try to figure that out and think one of the, one of the tests for that is, is to, to ask, would a scribe years later add this because it makes the text and it makes the people in the text look better? Well, this is one of those passages where you know a scribe did not put that in. There's no way in the world a scribe is going to put the words in Jesus' mouth, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And, and when Jesus, Jesus responds to the disciples, and he, when he says, this is enough, that's enough, he's not saying, all right, we have enough ammunition to take out the Romans. Two swords, good enough. You know, what are two swords to this Roman and mob that's coming to get Jesus? It's a rebuke. He's saying, enough about the swords. It's like telling a child a story. And, you know, you have this group of children, you tell a story about some, some beautiful story of a prince and a princess and all, all these wonderful things happen. It's got this great moral that you're trying to, to communicate to them. And somewhere in the story, you inadvertently, just inadvertently mention a frog. 
And for the next 15 minutes, you're answering questions about frogs. You know, what color was the frog? Why do frogs' eyes bulge out like that? How far can a frog hop? How long can a frog hold their breath underwater? And you're like, enough of the frogs. Frogs have nothing to do with the story. Why are we on this? You've all been there, right? You've done that. And I think Jesus is saying the same thing. Enough about the swords. I was just trying to help you understand that this is going to be difficult. There's going to be a lot of pressure on you, a lot of opposition. This is not about swords. That's enough talk about the swords. But we get so enamored with wanting to fight and with the weapons that all we want to talk about are the swords. And I think it's because we have forgotten that that the way of the cross is the way of life. That we don't use the strategies of this world to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We don't use the strategies of this world in opposition to those who, who want to degrade us and, and want to fight against us. I think one of the reasons that we really wrestle with this is, is because we, use, we tend to use the weapons of this world to defend uh, the interests of the kingdom more often than not. When I listen to people talking about wanting to engage the culture and change the culture and, and try to do some things in the culture, it seems to me that most of the time what they're really talking about is protecting Christian interests. I want to make sure that I maintain my rights as a Christian. I want to make sure that I am able to do what I want to do. I want my life to be as easy as possible. And so that's why I fight. And, and we get so wrapped up into that, that when we hear people say we need to protect our Christian rights, our natural response is, yeah, of course. When actually the response should be, says who? It struck me a number of years ago that one of the great oxymorons of our faith is Christian rights. It just seems to me that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, something of that is given up. The one Because it's about the one who, who Paul describes who gave up his right to grasp being God. He gave it up. But we want to hang on. Some of you may have heard about the, the new television show on ABC called GCB. And it stands for Good Christian Bells. At least that's what it stands for now. It didn't originally stand for that. But they, they you know, it's a, basically it's a, it's a story, a weekly show about how Christians or people who are in the church in the South, I think it's particularly directed to women. I haven't seen it, but I saw a few previews of it and I've read about it. Particularly, it talks about how they gossip and backbite on each other and, and don't act very Christian toward each other. And it presents Christians in a very negative light. And, and I don't like that. And it bothers me. And I read about a group this week that uh, their goal was they claimed to have a million people that follow them. And their goal was to put enough pressure on the network through boycotting the show's sponsors that they would shut the show down. And after the first week, this letter came out. Victory, way to go. You're making a huge difference. Most of last week's sponsors heard you loud and clear and did not sponsor this week's episode. They pulled their ads from the Christian bashing ABC program. 
Our organization continues to be disgusted with the new program, which is blasphemy at its worst. It mocks Christianity repeatedly. The anti-Christian program blasphemes God, Jesus Christ, God's church, and the Bible. And as Christians, we will not stand for this Christian bashing program. Their actions are giving damaging and destructive perceptions of our religion. Together, we will defend our Christian values and beliefs. Networks like ABC continue to mock Christianity, and we will not put up with it. Now, about three thoughts came to me as I read that. One was, I wonder if we ought to use this opportunity to examine ourselves and our church and, and ask, is there any truth in what this show is revealing? Is there any reason that we might say, hmm, that does kind of look like us, doesn't it? The second thing that came to my mind is that when, you, when I read this language, it sounds an awful lot like the language we heard coming from the radical Muslims after the soldiers burned the Quran. Now, I'm not saying that this group is going to bomb the ABC headquarters, but their language sounds an awful lot like that. And it's language that comes from people who are not followers of Christ instead of people who are followers from Christ. The third thing that came to my mind is if we're really concerned about people being misrepresented, then do we create these kinds of responses when we see Latinos being misrepresented or atheists being misrepresented or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses being misrepresented? I haven't heard that happening. And I think it comes back to, it's about us. You know, I come back to to Jesus talking about the sword. And and I, I wonder if one of the reasons Jesus brings up swords in the first place is to remind the disciples and to remind the enemies of the disciples that we have weapons. We have all the same weapons that the rest of the world has. We have the weapons of power and wealth and prestige and and political clout. We have weapons. We just choose not to use them. We have weapons at our disposal. We don't use them. And you have to wonder about what this this strategy of self-preservation, what kind of message that's sending to our children When people oppose you, if you've got a sword, use it. And it's hard for us. I don't like to see this kind of thing happen. I don't want Christians to be misrepresented. But is it possible that our response to the misrepresentation is missing what Christ is calling us to be? Because ultimately, we have to come to the place of understanding that in the face of opposition, the plan of God, of how his people respond to that, is love that culminates on the cross. That is what, that's the strategy of the kingdom of God. It's loving, it's compassion toward our enemies. It's grace and mercy and patience and kindness and truth, all truth. Not just truth that benefits us. And we begin to understand that God's strategy for winning isn't power, it's the cross. It's not showing the world who's boss, it's the cross. It's not 
flexing our corporate muscles. It's the cross. In fact, I I read something someone said recently. They said when God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it doesn't look like Rambo or the Terminator. It looks like Calvary. The mightiest sword in the kingdom is not a sword at all. But the loving submission of God's people. And if we're going to be involved in the political process, if we're going to be involved in, in, in things like, like standing up for rights, then our call, first and foremost, is to stand up for people who have no voice. To be a voice for the voiceless. To be, a, to be an advocate for the vulnerable and the innocent and the people that our culture and our world takes advantage of. If we're going to stand up for someone's rights, it ought to be those folks. That ought to be our higher priority because that's the spirit of Christ. And we're worried a lot less about how we're being treated and much more about how other people are being treated. And even more, how we are treating other people and particularly those who oppose us. The kingdom of God doesn't seek to conquer. The kingdom of God seeks to transform. And the only way we are ever going to have a a witness in this world is to have a witness that looks different from the rest of the world. To respond to people in a way that's different from how everyone else responds. To respond with love and compassion and grace. And I know that's hard because that feels like weakness. That's because it is weakness. But it's our weakness in God's strength. And if the plan of God for reconciling the world to himself is the cross, and how could we ever think that our part in bringing about God's purposes would be anything different than the cross. God's plan, this isn't plan B because plan A just didn't work and so this is second choice. This is God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And as followers of Christ, we are called to the spirit of Christ. To a willingness to surrender and sacrifice and love. And yes, even to stand for truth, but to do so in a way that looks totally different from how everyone else stands for truth. Because it's not just about the end, it's the journey. It's how we live and our attitude and our responses. And if we really want to shake up the world, then we get involved in standing up for people that don't have anything to do with us. Don't, don't, aren't gonna bring, it's not going to bring anything back to us. But it's because it's right. And it's because it's what Jesus would do. It's because it's the nature of his kingdom. I think the hard part for us is to truly believe, to truly embrace and to trust that God's strategy of the cross 
really works. That the the power of the cross is greater than the power of any enemy, any opposition that will ever come against us as God's people. Do we trust that God's plan works? That it's right? That even when it seems awfully slow, even when it seems to not be working the way we want it to work, that God's way is the right way. That the way of the cross is the way of life. Will we trust enough to embrace this strategy, to embrace God's plan wherever it takes us, whatever God's plans for us? Because it is the way of God. Heavenly Father, it's a hard word for us. I suspect that every one of us right now is thinking, yes, but it's the most natural thing in the world. Heavenly Father, speak to us where we need it. And give us grace to embrace your plan for reconciling the world to yourself through the cross. And as your people, to willingly, lovingly, joyfully take up our cross and follow you. Let it be so through Christ Jesus. Amen.